Hi, everyone, and welcome to China. Thank you to everyone who's listening in. My name is Mike Shaw, and I am the chapter leader for Podcast Brunch Club in Beijing. I'm also the host of my own podcast, Migratory Patterns, where I explore the changing meaning of home and the shifting identity of global expats and migrants. Today, our local Podcast Brunch Club chapter, which is filled with expats, have gathered to discuss this month's listening list, which is themed "Understanding China." Given that everyone here. Everyone here is from or lives in China. We thought that it'd be a good idea to share our thoughts and reflections about the podcast that the people in PBC chapters all around the world will be listening to. Do we think these episodes cover all the most important things that people outside of China need to be aware of? If not, what did they miss? What did they get wrong? And what did they get right? We've got a great crowd that's come out to the local, a favorite bar and restaurant among expats and in the Salintun section of Beijing. Which is an area of town where foreigners have been hanging out and having fun alongside curious and outgoing locals for decades. We're a new chapter. We don't have a set format, so this will be pretty freewheeling conversation. But I'll do my best to try to guide us along so that we talk about each of the podcasts on the listening list, and I'll try to make sure that everyone who wants to share their feedback is included. In that spirit, everyone here, please be sure to introduce yourselves and let us know where you come from the first time you jump in. So let's get started with the first podcast on the list. This is Seneca's "The China Questions" episode. What did everyone think? Who'd like to go first? So I'll I'll speak up. My、yes. name is Joseph. I'm from the United States. Okay.、Uh, for that episode on China questions, I I would kind of mentally categorize that episode and the book they talked about in the same grouping as a China for Dummies or a China for Beginners book. The kind of thing that I would give my mother. I would give my cousin. I do kind of get the impression、uh, that somebody who's fairly well versed in China, or somebody who studies China academically, would not necessarily gain so terribly much from the book. Some of the essays certainly did sound interesting, kind of diving into specific areas of expertise.、Um, but on a broad scope, you know, definitely aimed at a generalist audience rather than a China-focused audience. Yeah, I I kind of.、Uh... Almost saw the podcast as an introduction to the writers themselves, and to the Fairbank Center, which, you know, if you're a, if you're a China watcher, which is what Seneca is kind of geared towards, it's a China nerd podcast. If you're already a China nerd, these were it's almost like an inside club, and these were like, hey, everyone in our club, these are some people that you should be talking to. If you're not a China watcher. You might not be so interested in who those people are. <laughs> I think it was like twenty-three minutes they talked about just their background and how they wrote it and how they went about it, and that's okay because I think we, you know we're bit, we're China nerds because we live here. But、uh, other than that, it, I, I kind of am wondering what other people who don't live in China or aren't China watchers might have thought of it. You know, I was really、uh, because I'm more interested、uh, in the tech. And the trade war. So oh I, yeah, that came because, later. Yeah, because I I don't need the intro to China. I was born here and I was here until I was about twelve. So I mean, so I mean that makes me actually question where I'm from. And、uh, I mean that's just I mean I have a mixed accent of American, Chinese, and <laughs> British accent. That's really making me feel. An outsider to all these places. Did you did you think that these podcasts,、uh, even if not just this one, do you think that these podcasts were interesting to you because it kind of showed you what people who aren't from China, who are looking at it from the outside, think about China and how they think about China? Exactly. I think. I mean, I listen to the Intelligence Squared、yeah. because I'm I'm actually a follower to their channel. Anyway, and.、Um, They actually, I mean, I'm all, I'm often amazed by how much、uh, the foreigners, to Chinese people, that is,、uh, understand how Chinese economy is working and how the policies or politics here, and so they actually covers the basics of the politics at least, and they offer a lot of insight about how actually the shortcomings and the strengths in the. All those sort of policies and、uh, just business and the, I mean the landscape in general. Yeah, I thought that Intelligence Squared was was、um, really interesting because everyone who was on there, they are really deep China thinkers. They're policy people. They they write books about it. They they run think tanks, and they're re- they were really well prepared because they tried to cover so many topics. 
in Intelligence Squared. I think it was, was it three or four? And they only had like yeah. 15 minutes for each one. And they, they kind of kept it strict. You have 90 seconds, you have 90 seconds. But they were all prepared. They had their 90 second blurb on each point. And as a, as a China nerd, as someone who lives here, I wanted to hear more about each topic. Like, I, I wanted an hour on each of those topics. <laughs> but I guess if you're not from China or if you're not living here, that's something that you could actually get a really good overview from. Right. Yeah. Did any of the points in the... So I, I just want to go back to the first one because the, 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 the Seneca one with the, with the writers, Jennifer Rudolph and Michael uh, Sony, the... That episode for me, I didn't take a lot. For, like like you said, uh, it was kind of like for new people, like a really like if you don't know anything about China, very yeah. China for dummies, which is I cool. think it would be great for my mom. And I'm kind of considering <laughs> buying that book as a present because she loves learning about China. She loves reading about China. You know, she doesn't know all the intricacies, um, but I think that would be good for her. I now as as people who live in China and have an idea of what China is about. Did you think that there was anything in that podcast or any of the other ones that you would highlight as being really important? Like, okay, if you take not, hey, everyone not in China, if you take nothing else from these podcasts, these one, two, three points are the most important. Did anyone, uh, can anyone think of anything like that? I'll, I can start. I can start. So, so for me in the first podcast, um, the Seneca, uh, the China questions, I thought the most important things were, China is the world's fastest growing economy and it's Chinese, the China-America relationship is the most important bilateral relationship of the, in the world. One of the guys, uh, I can't remember if it was Jennifer or Michael, I think it was Michael, said, having a basic understanding of China is in everyone's interest. Like for me, that was the big takeaway for me. It's like, look, you might live in the Midwest or you might live in, if you're in the US, if you, or you might live in Canada or wherever. You need to have a basic understanding of China. You can't not think about it ever because everything that happens between the U.S. and China will reverberate out into the world. The other two I had were, I love this line, Americans are not going to be able to answer the questions on the big problems of the world, such as the environment, global security, and jobs. You can't answer those questions without involving China because China is so big. So when we think about global warming, we think about world trade, not just the trade between the U.S. and China. We think about naval security, the Strait of Malacca, where 80% of the world's goods flow through. I mean, all that stuff. China is involved in all those things. And the last point from that podcast was, this gets a little bit tricky. We're in China. The assumption that China's regime is illegitimate. This is something that really like rang bells in my head is that a lot of people outside China and I find myself doing this. I talk to them and I'm, I'm like, you know, they'll say Chinese people are oppressed or it's a tyrannical regime. And yeah, it's autocratic. But what I usually tell people is, look, the Chinese people know how to overthrow the government. They've been doing it for thousands of years. And when they want to, they will. And they'll kill everybody. <laughs> and the people in charge know that. So it's like, that's not to say the Chinese people are happy with everything, but I think that uh, in America or in the democratic West, we have this assumption that because China is not a democracy, the government isn't legitimate. But if you're here, the people seem generally fine with it. And I, and I feel like that's something that Americans, anyways, that's what, th those were like the points that when I heard it, I was like, oh, I need everyone outside China to zero in on those. Did anyone else have anything that, that they thought like that? Well, you know, I think the things that I consider to be fairly important has a lot of overlap with the ones you mentioned. Um, but if you're willing, I'd love to dive a little deeper and discuss that first point, that everybody ought to know China. Yeah. And I've considered a parallel idea pretty, pretty frequently, that everybody ought to learn English. And I'll, I'll kind of draw this parallel in the sense that... That's nice and colonial. Let's people, go. <laughs> Colonialist. <laughs> certain people in certain professions or in certain regions of the world, it's incredibly beneficial and helpful for them to learn English. And for other people, it's absolutely useless. And similarly, if we're talking about um, somebody that works in international banking in New York, it very well may make sense for that person to have a good understanding of how China functions economically in the Chinese financial systems. Um, but if we're talking about... Uh, 
you know, a corn farmer in Iowa, you know, maybe they don't really need that level of understanding or that level of um, knowledge. And I think for a lot of people, there are things which do affect our lives, which it doesn't really change our lives very much if we know a lot about it. Um, to take a very simplistic example, I have no idea how my phone works. Mm -hmm. You know, I know how to connect to Wi-Fi, uh, but I know nothing about electronic engineering. I know nothing about signal switching, you know, but I'm still able to function. I'm still able to use it quite effectively. So I, I think I would kind of take issue with the idea that everybody needs to know about China. I think this is one of the ideas where people who are relatively wealthy and well, relatively international, we kind of look at our own social circles and then we generalize to that. Whereas in reality, our own personal experience is not generalizable to people as a whole. I might challenge you just a little bit on that. Maybe, I actually like your analogy though, with like you know how to turn on your phone or you know how to connect to Wi-Fi, but you don't know how it works. I would equate understanding just the basics of the Chinese system and the, the bilateral relationship or even China's trade relationship with the world in general would be akin to how to connect to Wi-Fi. You push the button and it works. You don't know how it works, but you know you have to push that particular button. Like, at least some kind of surface knowledge. I think that makes sense. Yeah. You know, you don't have to go super deep. You don't right. need to know the, the mechanical engineering of how it you works. You don't need to know but, Xi Jinping thought. Like, but, know the difference between Wi-Fi and mobile internet. Right. You know, know that one is limited and the other is, like, unlimited, for right. example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So knowing the different, like, understanding that, oh, China's nine-dash line has these kind of implications for world trade and all that type of thing. That's kind of all you need to know so that when people, when you hear certain things in the news, you understand, oh, because of this, interest rates might go up, which means my mortgage might go up, which means, you know, oh, if China sells all U.S. treasuries, that means the value of the dollar might go down, which means these things are, like just having a basic knowledge that things that happen in China or with China will have an effect is important, I think. Yeah. That makes sense to me. Yeah. yeah. I really like that Intelligence Squared. I know I mentioned this before because they ran through so many things. I kept stopping and wanting to take more notes. Yeah. <laughs> what, were the, what were the points that, because you talked about because you feel a little confused because you grew up, you were born here yeah, and then you grew up in multiple right. places. And then it did... Did this particular podcast appeal to you because of the 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 they had it they had a Chinese guy on there I forget his yeah, name I, I, I forgot. I, I'm, I'm terrible I can't forget his I think he's an MIT he's an MIT yeah, guy yeah he's that a was correct that yeah, yeah. teaching something All right he's good yeah um, so basically I mean just um, previously you were talking about like, having basic um, information and understanding about China and for me it's bit it's a bit difficult. And I don't know if it is also the similar for traditional Westerners because there's always uh, something like prejudice or pre-knowledge about China, like the polity and the way democracy doesn't really work here. And that sort of kind of already clouded my judgment growing up. So I cannot say that I have an unbiased or like a fresh pair of eyes when it comes to issues concerning China. Or sort of, um, I always have a. I mean, I, I have always been sort of um, um, having a this dubious, um, I mean, skeptical views on things related to China, and uh, so that's. And when I was in the United States, and um, when I talk to most people, they don't really think I'm from China anymore, and. But they, they still think I look Chinese. That's for sure. And some. I am so tempted to go into my podcast mode because, like, <laughs> my, my, the question I ask yeah, people sorry. is, "Where is home?" and "What does home mean?" Yeah. And I get into issues of identity. Like, I just want to hijack this whole yeah, thing and start know. asking, "Are you Chinese? Are you American?" Like, <laughs> no, I, I won't do that. But, it's, but <laughs> I mean, so basically, I mean, in my daily conversations, the topic of China never really surfaced in any context. I, I mean, any sort of uh, discussion group I go to because that's, I mean, people are not that interested and uh, it is back to the first question why people should have uh, basic knowledge about it and uh, what are the basic things should be learned about. I sometimes, when, when people ask me what China is like, I would just hesitate in answering because it rather depends on, I think sometimes when you find out things, it's more like the things you want to find out 
And do you get when, when someone asks you what China is like? Do you give a different answer depending on the kind of person you're talking to? Like if you're talking to an American versus a British person? No, because I mean, I always ask first, what do you want to know about? Because I mean, geographically, or do you want to know the politics? Because I'm quite into politics everywhere, so I know more about politics than about geography, obviously. And if they want to know, like. Basically, what sort of restaurant they want to check out if they go to China? I could. I mean, I think that's mostly. I mean, when I ask, I pose that question to them. They don't know what they are after, actually. Yeah. I mean, that's fair because you don't know what you don't know, and you don't know what you want to know, and that sort of thing. So, I always have difficulties trying to give them a general picture about China because it's so many things. It's like、um, you tell Chinese people what America is like or what America is about. It's always difficult because it really depends on what you want to find. Because you want to find out the cultural and the, whatever the literature and everything. That's totally different from if you want to find out more about、um, the, pol- the politics or about. Anything else, where the business environment, I mean, it's totally different. It's also different. It's also difficult because China is so diverse, which is one of the things that I and I'd like to get your your guys' thoughts on all of this. I, one of the things that I didn't hear in this in these podcasts was the、uh, was just the scope of diversity that is in China. I mean, there's geographic diversity, there's topographical diversities, there's weather, you know, climate, climatological diversity, there's ethnic diversity, you know, linguistic diversity, and when we talk about, when, especially in the West, when they talk about China in the media, it's just China,、yep. you know, you know, maybe they'll mention Shenzhen as being the Silicon Valley, which is one of the things in Intelligence Square. Well, that's great, but. Shenzhen is so different from Beijing. I mean, it's just like a complete opposite kind of city, and the people are different, the culture is different, the food is different, and the attitudes are different. I mean, it's much more outgoing and worldly and open to new things. Like I, I, I use the,、um, I use the analogy of going to a restaurant and ordering off the menu. If you try to order off the menu in China, as a rule, generally, it's just going to be a disaster. I mean, what do you mean you don't want this vegetable in your salad? That's、exactly. it's on the menu. You have to have that. But if you go down to Shenzhen, they will actually work with you. Like they'll, it's just different. They're open to change and new ideas and new things, and they're in it. They're more innovative, which a lot of people I feel like that gets lost in the translation. It's like. It's like if you try to convince China, like if you try to teach a Chinese person about America, only learning about news out of Florida, like you think everyone was shirtless and wrestling alligators and doing crazy stuff. <laughs> Are you、uh, from China? Are you Chinese? Uh, yes. Uh, uh, Just introduce uh, yourself the first time you okay, talk. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, okay. My name is Rahul, and、uh, currently I'm working in the optical fiber business in, Be- in Beijing, and、uh, I'm working as a salesman. Did you listen? Were you able to listen to any of the podcasts? Uh, yes. Uh, uh, yes. I uh, uh, before coming here, uh, uh, I have watched the the, the intelligence square. Oh yeah. Debate between yeah. like uh, uh, in that debate, uh, uh, like uh, there is a uh, uh, like like there there is a economics from MIT MIT and also some other people. Yeah, the economist from MIT is really good. Yeah, I, f- I wish I wrote his name down. I forget it, but he's very good. Yeah, I think his name is Yash Yashong. That's right, Yashong Yashong. Uh, 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 for that debate, I watched that debate. I think, like、uh, it, re- um, I think it sort of、uh, my my understanding of it is sort of like because because China and and the U.S. we have a、uh, for the U.S. it has lots of、uh, trade deficit deficit. So、uh, and, and as a result for China,、uh, for the for the for China, like we have lots of、uh, U.S. dollar reserve because we we export lots of stuff to the U.S. Then we get U.S. dollar in, in exchange. You、and、also actually export things to Europe, and you also get U.S. dollars for that. U.S. the U.S. U.S. dollar is the world's reserve currency. Yes, so it yes, kind yes. of it, you buy oil, you get U.S. dollars. I mean, it's 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 kind of crazy that way. Yeah.、Uh, And uh, uh, and I think like um, um, I I think why why to 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 the to the degree、uh, we have a trade war because 
because for China, for us, for, for China, if, if China wants to spend, spend those US dollars, like I think they have, a, I think we have a, a three options. Number one option is to use some US dollars to purchase some uh, high-tech corporations, in American high-tech corporations. Um, uh, for example, like as I, as far as I know, like there are lots of uh, there are some of uh, co some corporations in the Silicon Valley already, like uh, some uh, Chinese investment into those corporation, or or uh, or the government can use the U.S. dollar reserve to uh, to to purchase some uh, agricultural stuff from the U.S. or it can use the U.S. dollar reserve to. Like to build some infrastructure, build some port, some railroad around the world, like the Belt and Road. The Belt and Road, yes, that was one of the questions in the in the Intelligence Square was the BRI. We'll yeah. we'll come back to that because I I think that's really interesting. I, I like what you said, I, how you called out the trade deficit. I one of the this is one of the things that I never hear in Western media. Um, I heard a little bit in the beginning when Trump began his trade war, and I wish Americans and Westerners would understand this: is that the trade deficit is not a bad thing by itself. Like you know, if you live in a neighborhood and you buy things at the corner store, you have a trade deficit with the corner store. So like we give them dollars, but we get things. It's not like we're just giving them money. Like we we give money to whoever makes the products, whether it's China or Vietnam or whoever. And they give us goods in return, and they are cheap, and they allow us to increase our standard of living and have more things. And we can debate about whether or not those things should be made in the U.S. and how do you protect jobs? You know, if jobs are eliminated, how do you protect those workers? That's a separate issue. The trade deficit is not the problem. The problem is how do you manage the shifting of the labor force from one place to another? And if the government doesn't do that. It's not the fault of the trade deficit. The trade deficit is our fault. When I go to the store, I choose to buy the thing that's cheaper. That's why Walmart sells things as cheap as possible because that's what people want. If people want to buy American, they can do that, but they don't choose to. And then we get into these debates about trade wars and really it's the government just telling Americans, no, 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 you have to pay more. We know you want to buy the cheaper thing. But no, that choice is wrong, so we're going to impose higher price. And it still doesn't make us buy things in America because it would be more expensive anyways. Yeah. And, I, and I was frustrated when they were talking about the trade war that they never got into this, this, this thing because it's always at this high political level and it's never at like the real level. Like for people, what, is the, what does a trade deficit mean to someone on the street? It means your phone is cheaper. <laughs> Like that's what it means. <laughs> it means this job over here goes away because the factory moved. Okay, so that's not the fault of the trade deficit. It's the fault of the government for not managing the transition from one kind of industry to another. Like in Massachusetts or in New England, we used to be manufacturing. The Industrial Revolution in America started in New England. We have these beautiful mill towns. Right? And there's little canals. You can go to this city called Lowell and there's canals that connect these old 18th century, 19th century warehouses where they used to build all the textiles in America came through there. Well, in the 19th, in the late 19th and early 20th century, all those factories left New England. And where did they go? They went to the American South. Like, and now the American South lost all their textiles to, to China in the last you know, century. So like this is not something that's new. It happens all the time. So but but now if you go to New England, we're the, like one of the richest parts of America. Why? Because we made a decision to transition our economy to other things, knowledge, healthcare, medical science, uh, high tech, all this stuff. It's not easy, it's not painless, but that's just the constant evolution of economy and they never talked about that in there and and, and you know, that frustrated me. Also, it's true. Uh, sorry. Um, so, but also, I mean, I think President Trump fight this trade war. I guess they based on the unfairness in the competition. So, I mean, it's true that uh, the labor-intensive industry moved to moved out of the United States and Europe in general. But the when working conditions in the new factories they can be 
unethical. Oh no, we, we yeah, we, we up our labor standards in America so we export exactly. cheap labor to other countries. We 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 up our environmental standards because we want yeah. clean air and clean water, so we export the dirty industry. Okay. Yeah, it, it, we export not just jobs, we export our lower standards. Yeah, yeah. but still yeah. I mean that I mean it's globally like coming it's, it's talking about the climate and everything. So I mean low standards isn't actually good. I mean basically it's like globally, everyone is trying to live on cheaper product because at the cost of, um, I mean, environmental disasters abroad, basically. Yeah. But um, but that also, I mean, I think that's sort of actually how economy works. But still, if you really, I don't think that's sort of. Um, I mean, I mean, it's not say for India or China or Vietnam to accept that lower standards just because they need the money or whatever because um, they're just I mean that I I mean well, my idea is that the Chinese or these um, less developed part of the world their government are trying to exploit the lower standard to impose them on the local people so that they can get foreign currencies, foreign reserves. Well, that's another so. thing. So, like, if you go to Vietnam, where chi a lot of Chinese jobs are now going to Vietnam, yeah. especially North Vietnam. If you go to Vietnam, a lot of times people in America will complain. They'll say, oh, we, you know, American workers can't compete with people earning $3 a week in Vietnam or, or $2 a day or wherever the figure is. But the flip side of that is, if you go to Vietnam, you can have a meal at a restaurant for a dollar fifty, it's like the cost of living is cheaper. It's not like it's not like this money isn't good to them. Uh, we can have discussions on what the minimum wage should be and what labor standards should be, and those are things we should do. But to just reduce it to Americans make twenty dollars an hour versus Vietnamese who make you know three dollars a day, like that is not the whole story. Because if that Vietnamese person only has to, I mean, I, I was exploring looking, moving to Vietnam last year. There was a possibility my wife and I would move to Vietnam. And we were just looking at, just like, do we move to this city or this city? What are the cost of living? The apartments you can get in Hanoi for a fraction of what they cost in Beijing. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Like these new buildings, like the 13th floor with a rooftop pool and two bedrooms and just gorgeous for a fraction of what we pay in Beijing. I'm like, yeah, let's go live there. Like you get paid less, but the cost of living is way cheaper. Like so, it's it's not as simple as that. And um, this kind of leads me to the next thing I wanted to ask you guys about. A lot of the stuff that we listen to on this podcast list, and, and indeed a lot of what's in the media, is very adversarial. So it's very much America versus China. We live here, so I never feel like we're against China. I feel frustrated that we don't try to work more with or harness or try to ride the wave like we like I see stuff happening here I'm like man why aren't we taking advantage of all the opportunities that are being created by what's going on here so I've got a question directly about that yeah. when you say we do you mean America as a whole do you mean foreigners living in Beijing no I think foreigners living in Beijing do it I mean that's one of the things we do here like we're, we're riding this wave man that's why we're here like uh, that's what I'm doing here <laughs> but yes, America in general. And it's kind of tough to say West and include America these days because of the policies of the government. I mean, Trump is not interested in forming alliances to try to do anything. He's trying to do it very much America alone. You know, it's one thing if you're going to do trade, you get tariffs on Chinese goods. Uh, one of the things that was mentioned in the pod, one of the podcasts, I forget which one, but if you do tariffs on China, well, guess what? China is just going to go and get their things from another country that's not has tariffs, so we lose customers. But if you had, before you imposed tariffs, worked with those other countries to align your policy, then there's nowhere for China to go and you can box them in and try to bring them into the system that exists. Instead, America's just going up against everybody. It makes no sense, you know? I mean, but, I have. Um, but I think, but I think, but I, I think, uh, uh, because for me, for me, the trade war, uh, Trump, Trump, like he, he, he imposes, imposes some tariff on Chinese goods. I think that can can have some good effects in, in the end of the day, because it uh, will force China to 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 more focus on 
like uh, uh, um, uh, improving the living standards of the local people, improving the purchasing power of local people, so they can spend more money um, on their own produced goods. So I think it doesn't it does not necessarily mean anything bad. Yeah, maybe. The, uh, that's in my opinion. Sure. And also, I think, I think instead of like uh, having a trade deficit for for the for America for America for um, I don't think that that can can sustain itself uh, forever because because it, just to, to do a sort of experiment, like if this trade deficit thing go for, go on forever, that means China will in the end accumulate lots of uh, loss and loss of U.S. dollar reserve, but. The, the problem for China is the, the, the U.S. dollar reserve, how much that U.S. dollar reserve can buy is ultimately depending, depend on the U.S. government. If the U.S. government print more money, that means the U.S. dollar reserve will purchase less thing, like some inflation, so over. So, so I think... Uh, I think this, this actually, I'm glad you mentioned this because this kind of speaks like to what I was talking about before, where the West positions this as very adversarial. But as he's just talking about, we are so connected. You know, it's not just China's holding all of this debt and all these treasury bonds. It's like, no, that stuff is plugged into the fabric of the Chinese economy. Like, it is, it is, we are connected so, so logistics chains from manufacturers in the U.S. I mean, your iPhone is, you know, made mostly in China. I mean, it's, it's crazy. So my idea about this adversarial relationship is more about on the government level instead of then the among the peoples. Because first, I my experiences in the United States is like nobody really cares what's happening in China or where China is actually. Well, but I think I, I agree with you in, yeah. in terms of regular people. But the media, the way the media yeah. presents everything, it's very adversarial. But I mean that is actually for I th I can see the legit reason for that because there is some um, national security at at stake because um I mean basically America the United States and the EU is basically rivals when it comes when it comes to product manufacturing everything the global market and they don't really come into clashes like the one that is currently having between China and the United States. Because, I mean, the EU and the, uh, the United States, they have a fundamental trust on each other. I mean, not like always friends, but definitely they have, um, I mean, just um, has to come to this uh, technology development and data and whatever, artificial intelligence, this new in this new industry, because that really is giving access to all the data of the nationals and the citizens. And the EU yeah, big and data means here. something different in China than it does exactly. in the US. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. that thing is actually, I mean, I can understand why Western media is trying to flag this as a major threat or security problem, because it is. I mean, on, on basic topics like human rights and the China and the rest of the world doesn't really have a consensus on the citizen rights and everything. And that is going to have impact on the Chinese, uh, on the citizen that is outside China. That is more like they have more freedom compared to China people in China. Well, a perfect example is actually this podcast that we're recording yeah, right now, exactly. is that we can record this if we're not connected to the internet, but we tried to do a live cast, exactly. but even though I had a VPN on, and I could stream, um, you know, I could watch YouTube, I could open Twitter with a VPN, as soon as I tried to broadcast this live audio stream, it yeah. shut down. It could yeah. not connect to the page. So it's like, they... Uh, there are restrictions on what you can do here, and it affects us, even though, I mean, you're Chinese. Are you Chinese? Yeah. You're Chinese. So, like, you guys have to live with this, but we're living in the system, so we have to deal with it, too. Um, and I, I like what you said about how it will affect other people, because these systems are all integrated globally, yep. which means that if you're using the Internet in Brazil, and you're using an app that was designed in China... Or actually, even an app that's maybe a company in the U.S. 
owns the app, but they have software developers in China and they maybe store their data in China, that means your data is accessible to the Chinese government at all times. Yeah, it definitely also affects what data you can find or what data you can discover. Brazil's an interesting scenario, actually, because a friend of mine works with Total in Brazil. Um, if anybody doesn't know, it's a major news and kind of soft news aggregation um, tool. And good luck trying to search anything controversial on, on, on Total if you're in Brazil and you're searching in Portuguese, because the chances that you'll find anything are pretty slim, because it is a Chinese organization. Your data is in China. Um, so it's the same way that if YouTube decided they, want to, they wanted to censor something politically sensitive in the United States, you know, YouTube's very popular in Thailand, very popular in Japan, no young Thai students would learn about you know, atrocities in American history. Yeah, yeah. Do you, do you, what do you think about the adversarial tone in the media in the West? Do you, like, you're, you're here and you actually live in a part of, uh, you live in a part of Beijing that there's not a lot of foreigners, so you kind of are in more China than, than I know I am. But do you feel, like when you talk to people back home or when you read the news, do you feel like, oh man, they're leaving that out? Are you just kind of like frustrated that you're not represented? Absolutely. Um, I think people also, especially in America, some people get really comfortable. And so if whatever they're told, they kind of go with that as opposed to doing their own research or talking to someone that they know that's actually in it and dealing with it. So I do get frustrated sometimes and I'm like, that's not the whole picture. People come to me, especially since I'm here in China, family members will be like, oh, what do you think about this? Or, you know, what's going on with that? I'm like, well, that's a small piece of the big picture. And then I have to explain the full story to them. They obviously get understanding then, but yeah, it's frustrating. What are some of the, what are the, some of the things that you always find yourself having to explain to people back home? They have an idea that it's very militarized here, that it's police in the streets and it's very militant, you know, strict that way. And it's not, not in the sense that they think it is. Like, they fear that I'm going to get legal representation. Uh, You're going to get arrested. Yeah, or something like that just for walking. I'm like, it's not like that. They it's have so interesting. God, it's so interesting you say that because the attitude, the, 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 the feeling in the U.S. right now is if you're, quote, illegal or you're an immigrant or something, you know, everyone's suspect. If you're brown, especially, you know, you're going to get rounded up. Whereas here, no. <laughs> yeah, I personally haven't had any form of that. I haven't faced any form of that um, to, with me. So I can't speak to that. But for the most part, most of the people that I know that are also brown or minorities in other senses, they also have the same story. Like, no, we don't get harassed by the police. It's really not a big deal as long as you do what you're supposed to do legally. Like, you know, you're not just out here causing a scene or, you know. Yeah, as long as you're not like hurting yeah, someone, they'll pretty much fine. let you do whatever you, it's actually this weird kind of reverse privilege, mm -hmm. like that happens because you're a foreigner. I, Again, you live in a weird part of well, not weird, but you live in like a you live in a further out part of Beijing yes. than 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 most of us do. But I, like we're in this Sanlitun district. There's so many embassies here, so there's tons of foreigners. And if anything, they just leave you alone because yeah. they don't want to mess with you. They don't know if you're working with an embassy. They're like, oh, I guess foreigners are just crazy like that. Like I've seen people wear the craziest stuff, and they just kind of nothing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess that's more like. I mean, the Chinese people, because I'm bilingual and I still have family here. That, so basically, there's a two tier of treatment. And so basically, I think foreigners, especially a foreign look individuals, have more immune immunity to all the difficulties that. It's a it's a privilege it's privilege yeah. but it's also a little bit of like oh he's just a dumb foreigner like I've had that happen to me like oh he doesn't know he's a dumb foreigner do, do you do you have do you have that with foreigners are they dumb foreigners actually, actually I have some experience yeah uh, because before uh, before coming to to this city I I I worked in Shanghai for quite a while and uh, I remember there is an ex uh, there is a experience like uh, I I was with a with a friend he is from Chile. And we are riding bicycles together in the uh, on the street of Shanghai, uh, and uh, and and when I, when we are when we are riding the bicycles, uh, there are because it, because in the downtown of Shanghai there are some rules that are prohibited to bicycles, 
But I don't know that. We, we don't know that. So we just ride the bicycle. And uh, we were so stopped by the policeman, and the policeman gave us a fine. And because I am uh, riding a bicycle with a Ch Chilean friend, the police, uh, the, the fine, the fine was a little, was doubled. I, th I guess it's not about money. It's a sort of a, like maybe they, uh, they have a higher standard. Oh. They, they, uh, I, I don't know the reason. I thought that was just French people do it to British people. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've definitely heard stories of people complaining that you know, in Beijing, if a foreigner calls the police officer to say, oh, my bicycle was stolen, like those cops will move heaven and earth to help that foreigner. Mm. Um, I have never personally experienced that, so I can't speak to whether that's accurate or not. Um, but I can speak to that the perception exists that official organizations or official um, groups treat outsiders differently. And I would probably also emphasize it's only people that look like outsiders. Yeah. You know, if you're Asian American, um, regardless of whether or not you're Chinese American, people will just assume you're Chinese. And uh, if, you, if you go to a club that has, you know, different prices for different people, you're not allowed to pay the foreigner price. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I've I've seen that happen too. Where, where, yeah, the 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 person who is Chinese American or Asian American, they will like they'll get harassed by a by a grandmother on the bus because they're not dressed correctly or they're yeah. doing something wrong. Held like, to different standards. Oh yeah, different standards. And and again, it's this weird kind of reverse privilege that's kind of privilege, but it's also kind of condescension where it's like. Yeah, you, you, we're not going to harass you about that, but at the same time, we're not harassing you because we just think you're a moron. <laughs> so, like, both privilege and microaggressions. Exactly. It's, pri it's privilege microaggressions. Maybe that's a good way to... We can, we can invent <laughs> a new thing pro, here. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. So, um, one of the, the, the last things I wanted to talk about here is... Uh, and maybe you guys uh, are Chinese. Can you just slide in a little bit so we can hear you? Uh, what's your name? Ronald. What? Ronit. Ronit. Um, maybe you, the Chinese uh, people can discuss this. One of the things that was on the final podcast was the Seneca, the Howard French, uh, uh, who wrote his book. He talked about, or rather I should say, Kaiser Goy asked him about, he said, it's hard to find the right balance between all the continuities between China's pre-communist past and the obvious changes that have taken place since. Chinese are, at once, people who are some of the most burdened by the weight of history, and they're also the most capable of instant transformation. So one of the things that I think Westerners don't know, and I kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier, is that China has this huge history, you know, what do they say, 5,000 years of history, right? But at the same time, modern China is really quite young. And, uh, you know, even if you just count back to the opening with Deng, you're talking 30 years, you know, four, or not barely 40 years. So as Chinese people, as people who have grown up in this culture, do you feel this connection with the pre-modern past, the imperial age, the you know, the republican age? And do you think Westerners need to understand that more? Do you think, because we don't talk about it in the West at all. Everything we talk about in the West is... Mao, culture revolution, maybe a little dung, and then basically it's Xi Jinping. Like, that's it. We don't have any concept of the imperial period, or the three kingdoms or whatever. Do you feel like the West needs to know more about these kinds of things? I think, uh, I think, currently, uh, I think currently the West already is uh, like, uh, getting more interested in this stuff. Because you know there is a computer game called Total War Three Kingdom. Like, it, it is produced by Saga. By by, 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 uh, by the British game, game That's, this is This is how we need to solve all of our world's problems. Just make it a video game. <laughs> no, no, no. You, you should try that video game. That, that's, that is based on the Three Kingdom period of China, Chinese history. And the, before that game theory, before that game theory it, uh, they produced the Total War Rome and the Total War Napoleon and the Total War Empire. Total War Empire is based on the... the, the the 17th century Europe, and uh, and so 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 it is sort of so that is the first time like the the focus on the game on on Chinese history, uh, uh, and uh, uh, if you play that game, you can you learn a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For for us, for me, I, I also learn lots of uh, lots of uh, uh, Chinese own history. 
by just playing that game. Do you feel like the... Well, I guess the reason... that's I didn't know that. I didn't know that was so big in the West. But I guess one of the reasons I brought up the question was because as Chinese people, you, you know, obviously you're living a very modern life and you're, you know, China is more advanced in America and the West in lots of ways. But at the same time, behind all of that modernity, behind everything that's new, you have all of this cultural history. And... I feel like Westerners would do well, or maybe Westerners would understand China a little bit better if they had more understanding of that. But that's my guess. As a Westerner, I'm here, and I can kind of see little pieces of, you know, you see traditional people in traditional uh, ethnic costumes walking around now these days, especially the uh, uh, the, Han. Way, yeah, the Han, the Han yeah, people, it's yeah. very trendy. And you see, you know, period dramas on the TV everywhere. So it's it, it, the culture here is uh, is filled with all of that thing, all that stuff. But in America, in the West, we don't have any sense of this. I think, or just starting, maybe like things like the video game. Do you feel like the West in the media should actually talk about these things more? Not just video think, games, but like I, news and cultural I, shows, things like that. I think I think in the in the first place, uh, 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 do, um, China is uh, China is becoming already becoming very Americanized. And uh, there is an interesting. There, there is something very interesting. Uh, I think in uh, in in the year two thousand and sixteen, the CCTV and China China National Television they produce uh, a documentary, and uh, the documentary is a uh, documentary is about the about uh, about the I, I forgot the title. It's sort of it's about the the it's about the life in Beijing, and in that documentary there are lots of there are some. Um, some Beijing local people, they are Beijing local people. They drive the, 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 uh, the, the, the they drive the Harry Davidson, the that motor motorbikes, the American motorbikes, uh, are roaming across the Beijing street, and uh, and that doc documentary interview, uh, they they, in, they go to interview an American, that that American is uh, is also a fan of those. American made a uh, uh, motorbikes. The Harley Davidson. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, that's okay. Uh, Harley, Harley Davidson. Uh, and that American, uh, that American said, said something. He said, like he said, he feels like uh, living in China. He feels like China is becoming more and more Americanized. <laughs> but that part, that part, if you uh, that in that documentary, the translation, the the Americanized translation was uh, deleted. Oh, uh, deliberately deleted. So it, uh, it 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 just it's sensitive. Uh, Yes, yes, yes. So <laughs> this idea is very sensitive. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, uh, so this is how in China the television works. <laughs> you know, I, I, when I go back to America, English is very famous for stealing words from other languages. Yeah, like, you know, yeah, of course, we, we're, we're thieves. And uh, <laughs> masala. I, yeah, masala, <laughs> rendezvous. You know, <laughs> um, I think that uh, America hasn't stolen any Chinese words yet. We've stolen long time no see. Yep. We've stolen some English translations. But like I think mafan is a word that's gonna be that's gonna come to I mean it's such a great word. When I go back to America, when my wife and I we go back, we will actually say to people, Oh, that's that's mafan. Like we, <laughs> and they'll go, What? Like we have to explain all the time. I I think that I think America to, could do well to become a little more Chinese. Like we need to steal some things. We're very good at stealing things. We need to steal some things really? from China. I, oh, what, what do you think? <clears throat> what, what do you think like Americans should steal will, from China? Maybe ma Majiao. <laughs> Mahjong. Yeah, what are the ways that America could like integrate some ideas or cultural practices from China, in your perspective, that would make America a better place or would improve American culture? I'd love to see like the meat behind this idea. Okay. Uh, well, I would challenge the word improve because I think, I, I, think, I think any change in culture is always perceived as a threat, even though it happens naturally over time anyway. But some of the things that I like about China that I wish... I would see more of in, the, in America, or that I think will come to America more as we connect more. I think some words like mafan. Um, I think uh, I think some some uh, food. I think real Chinese food, not the crap uh, <laughs> American Chinese food that you eat. I mean, I can't even smell American Chinese food without feeling nauseous. I mean, it's just so gross after you've been in China. Real Chinese food would be great. So I just want to say for the record yeah. that uh, for all the listeners, 
I'm an individual who loves both Chinese food and I also love American Chinese food. Mm. I think they are two distinct cuisines that have a relationship, <laughs> yeah. and they are both delicious. <laughs> Actually, General Gao's chicken is related to a couple things you can get here, but everything else, there's nothing. I mean, it's just yeah, awful. Yeah, the crab. Oh, the crab cake. Uh, crab meat yeah. rangoon. Crab, crab rangoon. Oh, it's gross. Um, I think um, I think the ability to adapt is actually something Americans don't do well. We are very stuck. Absolutely. No. Americans settle. Like, you go back to America and things... There's a, there's a tendency to want to keep things the way they are. Okay. You know, we want to feel like this is our community. This is the way things are. We want it to stay this way. I'm think, Even if you think about something like transportation... You know, like, oh, we can't have a subway because people want to drive. Or, like, we can't, like, there, like, there's no feeling that we need to improve ourselves. In China, you can, you can, it's impossible to compare the ways that China develops with the ways in terms of building infrastructure, for just an example, with the way America does it, because, you know, you have labor standards and, you know, property rights and right. personal rights, things like legal challenges, things like that. But, it, you can't deny that in China there is an attitude, there is a general national consensus. We need to improve. We need to build up. We need to make new things. We need to improve the way we can get around, give ourselves a better lifestyle. We don't have this attitude in America. I, I, think, sorry. I, I think maybe that is not true. I think, I, I think lots of people, people around the world always want to have a better living standards. Mm. That is a universal human desire. I don't think that is... A you need to visit America. You need to see I, the crap that we put up with in our transportation systems. Okay. I <laughs> we, think it's more so like work ethic. Work ethic. Yeah, because here in China, they have a very strong work ethic. Whereas in America, sometimes we'll say, or some people, I should say, will have this idea like, oh, I'm not going to do what I consider menial work for a significantly menial amount of pay, whereas in China they're just like, That's, it needs to get done, it's for the better of all of us as a community. Yeah. So I think it's work ethic. Well, I always like to argue, um, well, um, it's very simple. Do you think it is uh, it's a matter of strong work ethic or the poor labor protection? I would, yeah, that's a good. Yeah. But after all, is, yeah. it, is, is it surprising that you're talking about a third world country, a developing country, with a developed country? I mean, they've got so many people in this country not able to, you know, feed themselves properly. Yeah, people, people forget there's there's yeah. still like 300 million people living in abject poverty here. Well, I succumb to that because I don't find a working ethnic. Yeah, it's really sort of a higher standard or really comparable to the customer service in the United States. So um, basically, I guess, I mean, my experience in the United States is sort of everything is covered. I mean, people are more sort of at distance with each other because we cover our own purview. And we also like personal space. Yeah, I mean, that thing, I mean, but you basically, you are sort of expected to do your work and no further. And but here, the, the, the boundary isn't clear. So you could do, a, I mean, you could not actually perform your duties and still think, oh, I'm doing all right. Or you can just overperform or just so, to the degree that you're actually intruding the other the customers or whatever is the privacy and you're still thinking I'm doing the right thing. I think there is a lack of this sort of a concept of boundary or like the difference between working purview and other like other duties. And that really makes it sort of vague. So basically you get a random experience when it comes to all sorts of things like legal help or visit random the grocery shop and everything so that in that case I find it's more comfortable to have a sort of a set standard so to have a consensus in expectations of what you can get with your money and what you can expect from other people performing their job you don't have this emotional sort of uh, comfort or discomfort when thinking that the other people are falling short of your expectations. I think it's also, I, you know, it's funny is I think you're all right, 
like when you said better work ethic and you said, it, you know, is it better work ethic or labor standards? And when you said it's different expectations, I think a lot of it has to do with the diversity. And again, you have so many people who are living in such dire poverty. Of course, they're going to work their ass off, right? And and that you're going to have a better work ethic. And like you said, you're going to have if you're if you're maybe a little higher up and you see, oh, these people have no protections. You're going to say, well, they're working hard because there's no one protecting their their right to have a break in the middle of the day. And again, with the service expectations, it's going to depend on where you are and what the expectations are. Like, is that diversity? Uh, different in China, all different beasts. Yes, of course. Yeah, of course. So uh, we're getting towards the end of our hour. So I wanted to make one last round, round go around the table. So we listen to the podcast. We 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 we've kind of talked a lot about what we think about it and how uh, our experience in China kind of informs what we what we think about these things. As a closing, if everyone could take just maybe 30 seconds to a minute and just talk about maybe one thing that you would like to hear talked about more in the West about China, whether it's an issue, whether it's some fact that, that you didn't hear in the podcast that you want to make sure people come away with, the Podcast Brunch Club listeners around the world who are listening to this, what's one thing you want to make sure they take away from our talk today? We can start with you. Actually, uh, actually, actually, I don't have much to say about the about about how the media portray China, but I do have lots of lot lots to say about ordinary lives in China. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, like uh, uh, because uh, because last uh, because last month, there are some people in Be in Beijing, and uh, the org the um, the uh, uh, the uh, like some people they organized sort of a sort of a uh, sort of a sort of activity activity is a, in, in the Beijing metro like they uh, they holding some boards like telling people uh, telling all the people or uh, uh, commute 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 to work that they are overworked ah and uh, I have yeah. seen I have seen some, not I'm not on the subway but I have seen some of these protests in my office building where I used to work. They were people the old, these old people were pensioners. They had the signs because the one of the companies cheated them and they were you know protesting the, the company. No 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 yeah. it, uh, it is not uh, it is not it is different different. It is organized by some young young people. Oh and they are they are aimed at other young people also working in Beijing. Is this the nine nine six controversy? Yes, it's yeah. a sort of nine nine six controversy. And after that. After that, uh, metro, sort of metro active activism, like they are trying to set up a cooperative, but that that move was immediately stopped of by, the, by the government. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so pe people do have discontent here, and they are active, and they are trying to improve things, but. It it's, is dealt with harshly and quickly. Yeah, harshly and quickly. That, that's that's good. That's important because you don't always hear about that in the West. I like that. Yeah. So, so my point is like there are lots of things happening in China. Yeah, and lots of uh, lots of different social social change mm. is currently going on in China. Yeah. But that is seldomly reported in the, in, in the media around the world. Yeah. How about you? Right. So basically, my concern is I I wish that should be more talked about. On Westerners is, I mean, given the human right and the democracy and democratic status in China and the prospect that it's not going to improve very fast, how sh oh, should the West as an alliance take a firm stand on that or just to give in because of the economic concerns? Because, I mean, there is a lot of trade deals to be to think about and uh, but I mean at the same time you can see that uh, some like British institutions are already giving in so basically closing it's not even a close one eye it's just basically being blind to all sorts of abuse and uh, um, you know in shall we say um, injustice that's happening associated with their Operations and I, I don't know. So basically, my question is: To what degree should we stand up for our values? And um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I like that. Um, I would say for people to be open-minded when they listen to someone who's been here in China and think about how their experiences relate or how it is for people that 
born, bred, and live in China as Chinese people, just think about the fact that people live differently than you all over the world. And it's not not necessarily right or wrong or better or less. It's just than, different. Yeah, and it's no problem, but just be more aware. And don't just listen to what someone says, but also do research on your own to gather your own perspective and thoughts about it. I would, I would piggyback on that and say, I would like Western media to actually talk to more people who live here, not just locals, but foreigners yeah. as well. Like people who can speak to what it's like here from a foreign perspective and maybe translate the experience a little bit better. I like that a lot. Yeah, thanks. Uh, one thing that comes to my mind is just understanding Chinese opinions more, understanding Chinese perspectives, especially for issues that are controversial or issues that are really sensitive, I think it's really harmful and really damaging to come at it just understanding your own perspective with a relatively shallow or relatively simplistic understanding of another party's perspective. I think it's incredibly beneficial to understand why other people have a particular opinion. What are the factors that went into this? Um, you know, if I wear a particular flower on my jacket on a particular day, why is all of China going to be pissed off at me? Um, I think that would be incredibly helpful. And I think um, Americans, you know, where I'm from in the U.S., and I think people outside of China in general would have their lives improved in any interactions with Chinese people, um, whether that's informal or in a more formal capacity. I think those would be improved by this kind of a knowledge. like it. Well, I would like to say I hope people can focus more on the post-millennium generation of China. They are, after all, the future backbone of China's economic growth. And their consumption preferences will certainly affect the businesses in the next 20 to 30 years' time. Um, Maybe a little less about Xi Jinping, a little more about the guys working at Alibaba, the 996ers. <laughs> all their science. Oh, oh yes, oh yeah, all their science. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I think they are more or less the same people. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that. Well, guys, thank you so much for coming out. This has been lots of fun. Um, I hope everyone listening uh, was able to learn a little bit of something from our, uh, you know, perspective. Just that we live here. Some of us are from here, and uh, you know, hopefully, this. Uh, Hopefully this has been informative, a little entertaining, and we're sorry about so much eating, but this is brunch club, and we had a little brunch. So thank you, everyone, and uh, have a good July. <laughs>